everyone. We're here as part of the 2022 Big Rhetorical Podcast Carnival. Welcome to a collaboration interview between the Big Rhetorical Podcast and the More Than Memos YouTube channel. I'm Jacob Richter, and today we have the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Charles Woods, as well as Dr. Daniel Little, who work with the Big Rhetorical and More Than Memos, respectively. In concert with the 2022 Big Rhetorical Podcast Carnival theme of rhetoric, places, and spaces in and beyond the Academy, Today's conversation with Charles and Dan will discuss how podcasts, as well as YouTube videos, enable and constrain how we connect with both academic and non-academic audiences. We'll talk about how each medium helps translate insights from scholarship and how our two panelists view their roles in spreading knowledge in and beyond the academy. Our first panelist, Dr. Charles Woods, is an assistant professor of English at Texas A&M University Commerce. He received his PhD in English studies with a focus on rhetoric, writing studies, and technical communication from Illinois State University. Charles produces the Big Rhetorical Podcast, and for his work, he has received the Cairo Service Award, the John Lovis Award, and the Computers in Composition Michelle Kendrick Award. He is an assistant editor for Kairos and the best of the journals in rhetoric and composition, and has recently contributed to Computers in Composition and the Journal of Interactive Technology and Pedagogy. Our second panelist, Dr. Daniel Little, is an assistant professor of professional writing at Western Kentucky University, where he teaches classes in multimodal writing, digital rhetoric, and professional communication. And since the fall of 2021, he's also been the managing producer of the More Than Memos YouTube channel. Normally, Dan is behind the camera and microphone, but today we have him in front of it to reflect on YouTube's role connecting scholarship to places and spaces beyond the academy. All right, so let's get into it. The first question that I have for our two panelists is a pretty simple one. Um, what do you see as some of the primary advantages of either podcasting or video making as a medium for reaching a wider audience? Uh, Dan, why don't you start us off? So I think uh, one thing that, uh, uh, I think there's almost like two things that come to mind when it's like, what is useful about YouTube as a medium for this? So one, um, I think that typically, when I think about like spaces beyond the academy, sometimes I'm thinking about, texts or academic articles versus YouTube or versus podcasting versus this medium. And when you're reading an article, there's a lot of onus on the the reader to be very active about what are they looking for and to spend almost like energy in the course of reading. So even if you're skimming, you're spending energy looking for something. And if you're reading deeply, you're spending energy just reading every single word. When it comes to a YouTube video, we're almost kind of controlling that pace and controlling that direction in a very different kind of way. So I think typically the the pejorative word for this would be passive, that the user in a, in a for a YouTube video would be passive. I wouldn't necessarily say that that's the best word for it, but there's a different level of engagement that comes with something like a YouTube video. And that gives us an opportunity to connect with those people and to kind of direct them through what is the point that we're making? What is the point that's important at this point? for this kind of like research or for this discipline in a way that maybe they'd get lost in an article or they'd get lost in a conference presentation in the sheer density of what those things are. And the second thing would probably just be distribution is different, just like sending it out, sharing it across channels, being something you could just open up as a link and close down as a link. The language of that sharing and circulation is so much more accessible for the average everyday person 
Whereas if you've ever uh, had a student who's been like, what is the difference between a, a journal article and a journal issue? What are the costs of them and clicking on a link? It's very complicated, just the levels of knowledge you need to just navigate that. And I think that that level of sharing is probably the other thing that's kind of useful for kind of overcoming that hurdle a little bit. So those would be my, yeah, those would be my things. I like that word connection, right? And so when I was thinking about this question, I was th- I thought about two things as well. First thing was access, right? When we think about journal articles where what's most of them might be behind a paywall. Certainly there are great strides towards open access publishing and academics doing more of that. But when I look at my podcast or the big rhetorical podcast, I think of it as an open access publication. You know, that that's really what I, what I think of it as in, in many ways. And then the, the second thing is about connection as well, but we think about what academic writing looks like. And that looks very different from podcast scripts and podcast writing, right? These are completely different genres. And for the lack of a better term, and unfortunately to put it in a binary, it's like a formal versus informal thing, right? Like there's a certain connection, an informal connection that can be made in a Mm -hmm. podcast, even when you're discussing academic uh, texts and issues and concepts that is um, more accessible than in traditional academic writing. Well, wonderful. Awesome. Um, so I wanted to move on and ask you all to get kind of your perspective, your you know somewhat unique vantage points um, about what do you consider some of the important or uh, key differences between podcasting um, and YouTube videos as a medium for, you know, uh, talking to wider non-academic audiences? Like, like, what are some key differences between the two? I mean, one thing I might say is that, like, it's blurrier than ever in terms of the relationship between the two. Like, I... <laughs> Teach. I taught podcasts, uh, as Charles knows this, because I came to a lovely workshop in computers and writing. And so my students, when I was asking them about well, how do you listen to podcasts, they were like, I, wa- I watch most of my podcasts on YouTube. In a way that I was like, what, how? Um, it's blurrier, I think, than I thought about before. I do think that podcasting is leaner. Like, we just have to add graphics and think about several more media components when we're looking at video. So there's a a leanness to podcasting that for video, I think we don't have some of that capacity. I'm thinking about how we even define what podcasting is, because when I think about podcasting and talk about podcasting, I talk about it much being much more than an audio file attached to an RSS feed. It's Mm -hmm. graphic design. It's social media pages and management. It's trying to uh, extend reach in different ways. And so when I think about the difference between podcasting and video content creation, I think of the um, video I made around the computers and writing conference and put on social media to try to raise money for my nonprofit organization. That was the first time I tried video content and looking back on it, I was just like, oh my gosh, this is an epic fail because I (laughs) I didn't really know what I was doing. I was just making some video and putting it out there. Um, But I think that you're absolutely right, Daniel. This is a blur. This is blurred, right? Together. It's kind of messy and sticky. And I think that what makes a good podcast or podcaster, if that podcaster wants to do this, is to branch out into 
video. I think that's the next step. I'm trying it. I know other academic podcasters that are trying it. You all are doing this work, which is, you know, at least tangential. (laughs) So yeah. 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 What are you thinking, Dan? Yeah. I mean, I think that it reminds me too of when one of my first times working on academic videos, working for the Purdue Owl and trying to extend their podcast. Essentially what I was doing at the beginning was just taking podcasts that existed and putting them on YouTube and then putting visuals behind them. And they called them vidcasts because there wasn't really a name for like, what is an academic explainer at the time? So we might even see that blur is something newer that is a generative thing. But I think it's just, I don't know, as long as people have been trying to pin down and produce this type of content, there's been a lot of overlap between the two that's been messier than I think might look to people on the outside looking at these as like, well, that's a podcast and that's a YouTube channel in a way that's harder to untangle. Awesome. Yeah. I, I love that word messy that you use because I think the, the, the differences and similarities between the two are messy and they're, they're worth exploring. Um, all right. So I guess like, like, so one other question just to like dive into the nuts and bolts um, of, you know, talking to audiences beyond the Academy I'm wondering for each of you, um, for for YouTube videos and for uh, podcast production, um, like like what are some of the rhetorical choices that you face when trying to balance between speaking to academic audiences and then potentially non-academic audiences? And you know, uh, you know, in addition to that question of what are some of the, some of those rhetorical choices that you face, what sorts of things would you consider doing differently in the future to potentially cater to non-academic audiences? The first thing I think about with the podcast is things like I talked about earlier um, or are things like I talked about earlier, like running a social media page, right? And trying to reach audiences in that way. But it also, when you say nuts and bolts, right? I'm thinking about production. Who am I inviting to be on my podcast, right? Or on the podcast. And so every every season or so I like to have a podcast uh, episode that's kind of like specific to my home state of Alabama. Um, Folks that are longtime listeners have probably noticed that trend. Uh, And then I also have started recently, I've only had a couple of episodes like this, but I think that this really Jacob plays to your last part of this, this prompt is that um, I've been having more, people who run nonprofit organizations, people who are community organizers, because that is extending our reach in a way that is, um, well, there's like cross-pollination, I guess, is really the the best way to describe it there, between community organization and and the academy. Um, Another thing that that came to mind, I wrote down, but can't read my my chicken scratch. I'm going to let Dan take it away. I think that, yeah, connect those connections to nonprofits or that thought about who is it connecting to and who is it highlighting in a particular way is so important and is such an interesting question, especially when we're talking about this place and spaces beyond the academy, whereas beyond means so many different things. And I think that we can get caught up in this idea of 
Charles, you think of yourself as like 99% invisible or me trying to be like a crash course that is just so enormous in a way that sometimes the best course is just saying like, well, who is the next audience over? Like who will be the audience that is directly adjacent to the type of work we do and that can really benefit from those conversations rather than like going from zero to punching it to warp speed and trying to capture every single audience that exists in the world in that type of way. So I think we, uh, one of the articles that we've, have uh, tentatively lined up in the future also has an article that was about working with nonprofits specifically in that way. Because I think that like local community aspect is important and makes a lot of sense, I think, for that reach, for defining like the who of uh, that reach kind of question. I agree with that idea of, of local being incredibly important here when we think about that. And that's something that I try to well, I guess like I do that, right? But but sometimes I'm doing it consciously and sometimes I'm not, you know? And so so like when I'm I'm now here in this new state that I'm living in, like I've already got plans. I need to find people here in Texas to talk to, right? And so I think well, that's an incredibly important yeah. aspect of extending the reach. Yeah. The other thing I think about when it's like the that nuts and bolts aspect, and this is something that I think we've been toying a lot with, is the citationality of video because we have a lot of visual space there to kind of cite people or have citations appear on the screen or in the description or verbally via the people that we're interviewing. And so there's a lot of balancing there between the academic mindset and almost like the academic mode of talking. That's why does this matter? Because it builds on this other person or like, how does this contribute to the field is such an important question when you're writing the article that we don't want to totally lose that when we go to the video side of it, but also not having it take up so much visual space that it's impossible to then get down to the message. So I think, yeah, that where do citations go and what, what should a citation look like on a YouTube video is like a weird, interesting question that I think I wrestle with a lot with how to produce these videos and what kind of becomes in them. Well, awesome. Yeah. So it strikes me that kind of like both of the both of the answers that um, both 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 of our panelists, Charles and Dan, provided, um, you know, drive towards some of the opportunities for speaking to audiences beyond the academy. I guess just as a follow up question, I'm curious what the two of you would think about uh, think of as the some of the key challenges to making podcasts or videos interesting and relevant for audiences beyond, you know, beyond the academy. What are some of the key challenges in your mind? Well, I think one of the things is just I I always go back to this article, Janine Feinstock's um, The Rhetorical Life of Scientific Facts. And it's about like stasis theory and what does the public care about versus what do researchers care about? And in there, there's a quote where she says, unless it's going to hurt less or cost less, the public isn't going to care about it. And that is, again, talking with the broadest possible net of general audience at the end of the day. But there's still some way that the focus of our videos is different than the focus of the articles themselves. So it's not just skimming across the top of them, but giving a different perspective and kind of taking out their takeaways and saying, let's look at those takeaways and start with why this should matter to you and then work backwards toward here's how this research has contributed to it. So it's like flipping the article, moving it in a different direction, kind of reframing its reason why it exists. And that's kind of challenging because it's not always the same for every audience. And there's some tension there between 
Are you doing something different than what the original authors talked about? How different is it? How does this exist as a different type of product than the original article? So I think that there's a lot of yeah, different tensions, tensions and challenges there between the original thing and then what we're trying to reproduce to like highlight that thing. I really focused in on, on what you said, Dan, why this should matter. Um, and, then, and then I think about choosing topics and choosing speakers um, but also the purpose of the big rhetorical podcast is to amplify the work of graduate students. So the major challenge that I'm facing is to deconstruct the hierarchy, the longstanding, you know, hierarchy in education. By So why should this matter? Graduate students should matter more, right? We need to amplify their work and amplify their voice. So that's a challenge I'm facing uh, head on and hopefully uh, hopefully I'm doing good work and hopefully I can continue to do that work. Um, that's one thing that when I was looking over those questions, I, I will share um, this, this prompt. <laughs> I'm running, I'm going to run out of people one day <laughs> right in the field because it's not, a, it's not the biggest field, you know, writing and rhetoric. Luckily there's a couple of new graduate students that all institutions every year that will help with that. But those are two things that I thought about. One certainly more facetious than the other. Yeah. That's what we were trying to work. Cause we're trying to focus on uh, graduate students, students from marginalized populations. Cause I think, I don't know, that's a generally, I think important ethic. And then I think if we imagine both of our, our kind of like media products trying to work on that and then up that ethic expanding now we have graduate students with a limited amount of time working on their dissertations and more than memos in their inbox, big rhetorical podcasts in their inbox that we're all like, hey, we'd love to talk to you about your thing in a way that can become, can go down the line as that graduate pool shrinks as well. This is, this is important because coming out of computers and writing conference, um, I started thinking a lot more after the workshop that, that you came to and after my panel about like, how more than mem- how much meaning is more than memos making in the field? How much meaning is the big rhetorical and pedagogue and rhetoricity and chiroticast? How much meaning are they making? And how is that? I don't know the right word. Being elevated or in- enhanced in in the in recent years, and how is that going to enhance going further? So I think that this is an incredibly important thing that that we, you and I, and other folks that do this work in the field really need to be thinking about. I think actually it was your presentation on podcasting um, at, at Computers and Writing Dan that really made me stop and say, whoa, this type of research study um, needs to be done for our, our field, for the podcast in our field. And I can't remember exactly what you did. So there's a little bit of a gap there. Uh, sorry. <laughs> But yeah, I think just not necessarily thinking of these podcasts and videos as the most important thing going on in the field, but recognizing that they do do types of work to elevate ideas, to focus on certain things. And as we go forward and we have people coming up that watch YouTube all the time or listen to podcasts all the time, this is one of their ways of learning and thinking and moving forward in the fields, that it does have some responsibility to it, some uh, thoughts toward what is the labor that goes into these things and how is that labor compensated or reinforced and what is that meaning to your point? 
So I think I am personally definitely one of those people who is constantly listening to, listening to podcasts. Like I think I've listened to, I believe, every episode of The Big Rhetorical. I'm 99% sure. Um, and I'm certainly obviously part of the More Than Memos now. So I've certainly watched all of our videos and contributed to a couple of them. Um, and, and kind of like, like one of the things that I like most about both of these media products is how they, um, like once again, kind of like driving toward the theme of the, of the carnival this year, they help um, academics to communicate the value of their scholarship. And I think they do so in a way that, you know, oftentimes journal articles just aren't capable of doing because there is a level of life, there's a level of humanity, a level of, you know, person to person connection. Um, but so that, that kind of drives me toward another question that I have for, for the two of you. Um, I'm wondering, uh, what are some of the challenges that you see academics and scholars sometimes facing when communicating the values and insights of their scholarships to of their scholarship to non-academics? Um, is there anything that you see that academics you think could do better when communicating the value of their work? I think it's just so hard, even thinking about the difference between an article and a conference presentation and how both of those genres are challenging for academics to shift back and forth between. And that then when we move toward talking with a person in a bar or these media products that in, where you're being interviewed on one of these things, it's so challenging, I think, to shift those gears and to calibrate those things slightly differently. One of the challenges, uh, I think, is to move away from maybe some of the vocabulary that might be hard for other people to parse. Even someone who's in rec comp might not know some of the terms that are in tech comp, right? Like even those small differences in the field can have really big differences in the, the words you choose to kind of communicate those things. And that small dial, you also can't push it too far where it's all just the most buzzfeedy thing you've ever seen, right? So there's a big tension there of how do you still keep it academic while communicating the importance of these things? And I think that that would be the skill that I would recommend to academics, but also I would not take that skill lightly or say that it is necessarily an easy dial to funnel in. Like it's very, very challenging. And I think that's important for people to realize. This is a complicated question um, for me because I want to answer it in this like large global way. Right? <laughs> I want to say like academics need to confront the attack on knowledge. Everything that we produce has value, you know, and all of these types of answers. Um, and so that's what I'm going to do. I think that this is a larger problem that podcasts and, and YouTube videos can kind of uh, help combat, right? When we think going back to that conversation about formality and informality, well, that's really just about accessible language, like you just said, right? So if we can find that medium, right, to deliver this insightful, valuable work and through a medium or a genre that's accessible for different publics or public audiences, that should be our goal. And the problem is that we, as academics, feel pressure from both the institution and the field and the discipline before you even bring in departments and um, different publics, right? And so that's my answer. And it may not be like the best answer or the answer that maybe this prompt is looking for, but y'all, this is important. And I think that, that this is the answer I want to give. Yeah. I mean, the number of times I'm a person that when I'm at a bar alone, a group of men love to approach me and say, what do you do? And want me to explain the fields. It's always a time. I'm always the like drunk among the drunks explaining what is rhetoric to people. And that's, I think, like one of those skills that is as important as speaking to the academic publics is how well can you break it down to your parents or to your grandma or to your spouse so that you don't get locked down in 
in one style that only works for a limited set of audiences. Well, awesome. All right. So I'm thinking it might, it feels like it's time to me to pivot towards uh, more fun or more, you might say, playful questions. So I'm going to uh, dive into a, uh, this is really a dichotomy or a question that I struggled with in graduate school, and I'm guessing many others have. Um, all right. So a very open-ended, take this as you will. In your view, are podcasts a place, a space, or both? Oh, man. I've Indeed. Isn't this a hard one? It's a challenging little bugger. Okay. This is taking me back to like first year graduate school, <laughs> Dr. Julie Jung. <laughs> oh my God. Uh, um, a podcast is a space, but I talk about it like it's a place. And so that, that's my answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When, when I was thinking about this, I think too, it is forced first and foremost to space because it doesn't actually have a place in and of itself a priori, like before you get started. But I think that, like you were saying earlier, Charles, you can give it a placeness to it by locating it in specific areas and talking about specific people in those places so that as you're listening, you're like transported to those places or thinking about it as recorded in a place. You know, I think that you probably do better, a better job of that right now than we do. It, we don't necessarily say like where it's produced from or have a university attached to it in a particular way. So it has a placelessness right now that I think would be good to have a little bit more of that placidness to throw in some academic uh, extra syllables on the end of a word. But I think mostly it's a space, right? It's like a box where stuff goes in. And then you go and you open a box and you're like, oh, look at the things in that box. So I think, yeah, more of a space than a place uh, at the at the beginning. Excellent. I'm glad that you all had answers for that because <laughs> I think I would be flummoxed. <laughs> so, all right, just to close things off, uh, Charles, if you had one question for Dan about creating YouTube videos, what question would you ask him? And then uh, similarly, Dan, if you had one question for Charles about podcast production, what question do you think you would ask? I, my question is very simple, and I think it's an important one. Collectively, as a team, how many hours do you spend producing one episode of More Than Memos? Ooh, that's a good question. So I would say that it's, it's different depending on what episode it is. But I would say if we added it all up together... So for our second episode with Vina and Madupe that I would acknowledge everybody listening to this podcast to go check out, I would say that probably took... I don't know, in the range of 20, 25 hours, probably all things together between filming, the editing took a long time, building the graphics, even just the process of make, creating a rough cut, sending it to them, getting feedback, getting the cleaner cuts. Like we do several rounds of check-ins with authors. I ended up cold emailing many black hair care YouTubers for this as well. So I spent an hour or two just sending emails into the void. All that aside, it's just a lot. It's a lot of time to produce. Yeah, even just one episode in a way that I wish we could do it as very quickly and have a stream of content. But right now, it's just the amount of time it takes to produce one episode. We're really yeah producing them as quick as we can, you know. How long does it take to produce? This is not my question, by the way, but how long does it take to produce one uh, episode of the Big Rhetorical Podcast? Weeks. I mean, weeks. <laughs> no, uh, no, I kid. Um, um, some insight for folks um, who are interested in the in the Big Rhetorical. To answer your question, I usually do like recordings like one week or one day 
on like the third or second week of every month. And so like I'm usually a month or six weeks ahead, right? And so things sit in the in the bank, I guess, if you will. Um, but, you know, after, say, the recording's an hour. Uh, editing an hour of recording is three to four hours. Social media takes at least half an hour every week. So when my dad asks me this question when I go home, I say four to five hours <laughs> for one episode. Yeah. Oh, my God. Uh, very cool. I mean, that's just, yeah, it's interesting to know from just, you know, how long it takes. Uh, but my question to you is, because you've been producing this uh, uh, podcast for a good bit of time. So what is one thing that you would say has gotten easier from the first episode you've produced? Because we are at the beginning of our journey up this mountain that we call creating a thing. And you are well into the farther into that journey in a way that I am uh, jealous of. And you do such a good job. So has anything gotten easier? And if so, what what has gotten easier over that time for you in, in developing a podcast? So a couple of things. The first thing is um, that I have not had a lot of trouble in a few years finding guests from a podcast. Um, you know, there should never be pressure for graduate students to have Twitter accounts or to go on podcasts or YouTube channels to promote themselves. But the unfortunate reality is that as a graduate student, sometimes you have to do that work. And so as a podcast who amplifies graduate students, um, usually about this time of year, I have an inbox full of, of graduate students who want to do an episode. So that's become easier. And um, I smile because it, it makes me feel good about the work that I'm doing, not just that this uh, graduate students that student thinks that this could be a platform to for them to raise their profile if they wish, but that they they see value in doing it on the big rhetorical podcast. Uh, the second thing that's gotten easier is the and this is more of a conceptual thing, but it's the way I think about podcasts as an academic genre has changed drastically. Um, at first, I was like, oh, I'm going to start a podcast because no one's really doing this. And then a few of us kind of started. And there's, a, you know, there's a history of podcasting and rhetoric and composition, but there's not, no one's been sustained, you know, um, until the last five years or so. And so that's, that, that's what's changed. Like podcasts should be viable genres for tenure and promotion portfolios. They should be viable for academic awards and things like that. And they are certainly right uh, more so uh, every year. But those are the two things that I really think about that have become easier, right? How I think about a podcast and what it is and what it can be in academic settings. And then uh, it seems like folks like what I'm doing and want to come on the podcast. So I don't have to call the email for two hours. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. You don't have to explain to people probably what a podcast is. Which is <laughs> yeah, nice. that's true. Yeah, yeah there are they are ubiquitous. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Whereas I'd say even right now with more than memos, we're still like, so this is what we're doing. This is what it's going to be. Like the email's very long <laughs> of like you might not know yet, but this is what this. Oh, is yeah. Be. yeah, it's a very it's a long process of just it showing people this is what this thing is, so they kind of know what they're agreeing to do. Agreed. Uh, I agreed. I have had that email. It saved it as a template and just, you know, send it over. Say, and it would always end with, we're newer, so listen to this episode and see what you think before agreeing. And, you know, it was never the best yeah. one kind of thing. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, awesome. Thanks for spending time with us as part of the 2022 Big Rhetorical Podcast Carnival. My name's Jacob Richter. I'm part of the More Than Memos YouTube channel, and I'm thrilled to have been able to spend some time um, having a great discussion with both Charles Woods and Dan Little. Be sure to check out some of the other Big Rhetorical Podcast Carnival episodes being released, and thanks for tuning in.